Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. So we, we find ourselves here in the letter, in the very beginnings of the letter. Once again, kind of to get us back in that way of thinking and understanding who we're talking about here, um, Paul is, is writing to a young man who he kind of um, picked up on a, his second missionary journey uh, to, to come along. Um, he's been discipling him. He's been, um, Timothy has been kind of his, it's almost his spiritual son. Many times when you read in scripture, the way he refers to Timothy, there's a, there's a closeness and a relationship there that's quite, quite unique. Now, there's not many books in the New Testament, not many letters that are written to individuals. While it can, obviously, to our benefit, uh, we can read it today, and, and we, he, I believe that Paul knew that it would be read by, by churches and by different groups and house churches. Um, this, this letter, these three letters that we're getting ready to, to go through over the next several months, uh, but this first one is, is written to this young man. It's, it's a very intimate letter. It's very direct to him, uh, specific about what he wants Timothy to do, how he wants Timothy to conduct himself. It's not just about other people. It's about he's reminding Timothy. Don't miss that. It's not like that Timothy has it all together. He's encouraging and trying to remind Timothy of some things about what he's been called to do. And, and so here he's, he's writing this letter. It's towards the end of Paul's life, we believe. Um, and Timothy, he is here in Ephesus. And like I said, there's lots of false teaching here. There's, there's um, the Greek gods, all of these things. Can, can you imagine? You can, because we kind of live in that world today sometimes almost, don't we? The, 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 all of these other beliefs are there, and, and, and it's just right there. And, and Paul is saying, I want you, this 20-some-year-old man probably, to take the baton because my life is here on earth is probably short. And Timothy, there's work to be done. And so what is, we're just going to, we have a lot to cover. So, even, you know, it's only three verses, but there's a lot here. And so I just want to jump right to the big idea this morning. Timothy is commissioned for battle. That's really what this part of this beginning of this letter is about, is that Paul is commissioning him, and I would argue that ultimately God is commissioning him, but he's using Paul, his, his kind of his mentor, to, to bring him to this place where Paul, Timothy is now saying, understanding that Paul's saying, you have this role now, Timothy, you have this responsibility, and he's been commissioned. Now, he was helping Paul along the way in, in all of the ministry work. In fact, many times Paul would send him to another city or leave him a place for a little while while Paul went to the next city, and then Timothy would catch up, and Timothy visited him in prison and was there. And, and really, they had this great relationship. And, and I would encourage all of us, you've heard this before, if, you, if, um, if you've been in church for very long, uh, if you've been in uh, any good discipleship programs, everybody needs a Paul in our life, someone that's discipling us and pouring into us, and we all need a Timothy in our life someone who we're pouring into, someone who we are making the disciple maker. And, and let's be honest, the church does a horrible job at that. We do. We just, we don't. We're not intentional. The ways of this, the things of this world just pull us this way and that way, and we don't have time. We think we're not qualified. We think we're not good enough. And that's just, none of that is true. If, if you're a Christian, and we've said it, if you're a believer, you've been in, given the gifts and equipped with the Holy Spirit, you can do that. It's just really a desire to do it to make it a priority in your life. And so here, Paul has made that a priority in his life, and he has been uh, working with Timothy, and now Timothy has been commissioned for battle. 
Let's look at the first verse here, in verse, the first part of verse 18 in our text today. It says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. Let's, okay, what's that first thing he says? This charge I entrust to you. This, this charge. What, what is this charge? The first thing we need to know is what is this charge? Right? Because sometimes we can think, is the charge coming now? Is, is this thing he's getting ready to tell us is the charge? Or is it something that he hasn't even shared with us? Or is it something prior in the text? And so we, when we look at the language, we look at the structure of the Greek here, we can see that most likely it is the thing that he's already mentioned above. All right? Now, it goes quite a bit above. Because if you remember, uh, last week we talked about some other things. We talked about... Um, just how Timothy uh, is, is being encouraged by Paul, how Paul says, you know, this is who I am, this is who I was, this is what God has done in me, he's transformed me. That was all to encourage Timothy and say, Timothy, look, God is in charge. If he's with you, look what he did for me. He can do this with you and he can do this for anyone who you're going to come into contact with. Even those people that you seem to say are the most horrible people and unbelievers that if Timothy, if he can change me, he can change them. So he's encouraging him. So really the charge was even before that. The charge really goes all the way back up to 3 and 4 and maybe 5, verse 5 of this text. right? And what does it mean to say uh, this, you know, this charge here? So let's look back at 1 Timothy chapter three and four, or verses 3 and 4. It says, I urge you when I was going to Macedonia to remain in Ephesus. So he's told him to stay so that you may charge certain persons. Now here's the charge. Charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. That is the charge. Timothy, you are to stay and to refute false doctrine and to, to settle, um, to, to guide the church in, as they continue to learn. Now, Paul had already been with the Ephesians for Two years, and, and Timothy had been there. So there's this work going on. And it's interesting, right? Even in the letter to the Ephesians, what's he say? Put on the armor of God. And so he's even telling the church that this is, this is a tough situation. This is not easy, right? This, this thing about taking the gospel forth to a, to a hurting, um, sinful world is not going to be simple. It may cost you your life. And that's why Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to, you have to come and die. Because this is not going to be something for the faint of heart. In the American church today, many don't view it that way. We view it very much as God is going to do this for me and make my life better and easier. And, and while that sometimes does happen, and, and clearly it's better because we have eternity, we have a joy, we have a relationship with Christ, the creator of the world, and, and someone who dies for us in the, in the Godhead. And it's what a beautiful thing. But it doesn't make life easy physically. We may end up and have to give our life away. So when he says, this charge I entrust to you, right? This thing, he's saying, I entrust it to you. I'm, I'm depositing it. I'm, I'm giving it to you to keep on. There, now, there's two things when we look at this word, entrust to you. One is, is Paul saying, you have to you have, to have this thing. It, it's a, you have to commit to believe it, to own, take ownership of it, and, and make it part of who you are and, and protect it. But there's also this this point in here that I entrust it to you to share it, to, to keep sharing it with people, to go, to not, not just to be um, 
intellectually sound in, in what he's doing and, and correcting false doctrine, but to love people, to, to share the gospel with people. I'm entrusting this to you. We see, if we look at Paul's life, how did Paul live his life? That's what he did. He went from city to city and, and shared the gospel with people and, and debated and reasoned with people and, and was beat up by people that didn't agree with him and he loved them anyway and he shared grace with them and he shared the truth of the gospel with them and he's saying, Timothy, that's what I need you to do. I'm entrusting all of this with you. That's a pretty heavy burden, I think, for a young man. Anybody, for that matter. I'm going to make the argument. I said this last week. I think that God is entrusting us with that same thing. Now, I'm, I'm, obviously, we're not Timothy. Timothy was called for the special work. There's no question here that, that we're not all called to do what Timothy is doing, right? There's going to be maybe a special burden for Timothy. But I, I will say that there's people in this room that I've talked to that I've have great relationships with that. I know the struggles that you're in. I know that the, the things that God has called you to. Sometimes it's to your children. It's, it's just to, to living in life and educating and raising up and discipling your children, and that is not easy. Sometimes it's the friends that you have, the environment, the work environment that you have, that you work in, that he's called you there. Maybe he's called you into specific ministry inside the church or someplace outside the church. He, he does those things. You know, we talked about Target Dayton. I don't want to... I mean, Doug, I believe Doug in the last several years has been called to the ministry of Target Dayton for this season in his life. And some of you are not called to that. I'm not called to that, right? I I don't know what you're called to, and it doesn't need to be this gigantic thing. It could be the discipleship of your children. It could be being a godly husband or a godly wife and and being a witness in your your office or in your home and, and just refuting the doctrine to protect your children, protect your home. And so here he's urging him to do that. Charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And we'll see how this, this charge works out here. So as we go through the rest of this text, we're going to look at four things that I believe that God, through this text and I, that I pulled out, that I think that God is reminding Timothy, ultimately through the letter that Paul is writing to him, but reminding Timothy of some things about his commissioning and about who he is and, and about the consequences of, of what he's getting ready to embark on. He's preparing him for this battle that lies ahead. So the first thing I want to say is that I believe that God is reminding Timothy who commissioned him for battle. If God is commissioning us, the first thing we want to know is, is God the one that's directing me to do this, right? Is this my flesh? Is this what I want? I mean, I struggle with that many times. I, I want certain things. I think we ought to do something. I'm like, okay, is this just me and my ambition or my, is this my flesh wanting this? And so the first thing is that God is reminding Timothy because he knows the work that's coming is going to be hard. It's going to be brutal potentially, right? And he's reminding him who called him. So if we look at the the next part of that verse, and it says, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. So he says, this charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child. There's that intimate relationship. In accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. He's reminding Timothy that God has ordained you for this moment and that there's been words spoken over you to say that this is what you were supposed to do. Now, we don't know what those things were exactly. We can kind of make some assumptions. We can kind of look at some scriptures and kind of say, okay, we kind of see it here. We kind of see it here. Where's one place that we could see it? 
Well, if we go further here in, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we'll cover this obviously in a, a month or two, but let's go ahead and jump there. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. Now, obviously, Paul is still writing to Timothy, and look at what he says here in verse 14. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid, hand, laid their hands on you. So at some point there at Ephesus, the elders got together and commissioned Timothy for this work. And they lay hands on him, and they prayed over him, and they encouraged him. Now, sometimes when we look at this word prophecy, sometimes we can say it's, it's future telling. Thus saith the Lord in the Old Testament, right? I don't think that's what we're seeing here. Now, I'm not saying that there weren't, the Holy Spirit wasn't speaking through the elders of the church to say, Timothy, you're, you're going to lead this church. You're going to do well here, right? That's absolutely not only possible, but I believe that's absolutely true, that that's what they're doing. They're affirming the call that they see on Timothy's life. But see, I think that still happens today in people. When, when we called Pastor Brian, we got together and laid hands on him, and we affirmed the call that we had been seeing working in him. We, we saw who he was. We saw the character that he had. We saw his passion for the Lord, his desire, his gifts, and his abilities. And we affirmed that, right? We believe that God gave him that. Here, I think what's happening is, is that the council is getting together. They see this, this young man. They see he's, he's on fire for the Lord. And they wouldn't just say, well, hey, we're just going to take any young man here, sit him down, and we're going to lay hands on him, and he's, we're just going to equip him for this job. No, there was something in him already. We look back at Paul, the same thing. We said that last week, right? Was, was Paul already in an area of giftedness before God transformed him? Yes. He was passionate. He was zealous. He knew Greek. He was a teacher of the law. He was rooted in the Old Testament. He knew those things. And God brought that along, gave him those gifts, and then transformed him to using for his purpose. And so I don't know, maybe this morning you're here and you're not a believer, but God may still be working in you and preparing you for his service. He just hasn't transformed you yet. And we will pray that he will do that for his glory and your good. And so here we see that they've done this. And so if we kind of look at this idea of encouragement, we can, we can also look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3. And here Paul is, is having a conversation and writing a letter to the Corinthian church, and he's, he's speaking about speaking in tongues and, and, and that gift and, and what was taking place in the early church. He's also talking about prophetic things. And, and sometimes the prophetic is, is the pronunciation and the, the glorification of Scripture and God. It's speaking prophetically in the sense that I read Scripture and I'm prophesying, I'm, I'm extolling who God is. I'm not necessarily saying, thus saith the Lord in 700 years, you know, Jesus is going to die on a cross. No, that obviously happened in the Old Testament, got by God's grace. It absolutely did. So what does Paul say here to the Corinthian church? He talks about those who, you know, are speaking in tongues. Or this is this gift for really for unbelievers. In other words, to show unbelievers that God is doing incredible things that only God can do. But in verse four, chapter 14, verse 3, he says, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their building up and their encouragement. And, and so when we gather around someone, and, and we, we did this when we commissioned Mr. and Mrs. Smith and their three little boys. We had an hour and a half, I don't know, two-hour service. We got up, we, we spoke about them, we encouraged them, we built them up, we laid hands on them, we, the family gathered around, we prayed for them, we were encouraging them. We, so we say, we're, we're affirming, we see these things that God is doing in you. We see this call that he's put on your life, this passion that he's put in your life, and we're affirming it, and we're believing for it, and we're going to send you knowing that God is going before you. 
And I think that is what happens here. And so what Paul is doing in his letter, and ultimately God is doing this to Timothy, is reminding Timothy that someday when you're wondering, am I really supposed to be here? Is things aren't going the way I want them to go? He, he says, remember that I called you. Remember that I'm the one that put that thing in your heart. Because there's going to be moments when you're going to want to quit. There's going to be moments when you're just going to want to say, I'm done. I don't think, I don't see you working anymore. And don't forget, Timothy, I'm the one that put you here. Do you ever feel like that? Like you're in this relationship and, and you're wondering like how, I don't know how to do this. I don't know the Lord. And, but you know that God puts you there. You know that it's not going well. You're not able to communicate what you want to communicate. The, the person's not listening. But God has put you there. Maybe you're in an environment at work and you know that you're there for a purpose. It's not going well. And you just want to quit and get a different job. <laughs> and sometimes I think you need to sit down and say, did God put me here? And then I have to trust him. I have to stay the course. I have to not leave my post. Maybe you're a, a high school student and you've, you're with a group of friends and, and you're, you need to stand up for Jesus. You need to stand up and live a, a, a holy life and pursue holiness. And, and, you, and you're just saying, it's not going well. I'm, I'm losing some of my friends. I'm, it's not, you know, not, people aren't responding like I'd like them to. You just stay the course. Don't leave your post. Let God do what he can do and what only he can do. Maybe it's a, a spouse that you're with and they're, they're not a believer and, 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 and you say, man, I just, I just want to leave, right? What, what does scripture say, you know? Don't leave. That's what scripture says, don't leave. Now, if the unbeliever wants to leave, okay, we're not going to hold them, scripture says. But if you're a believer and, and, and your spouse is not a believer, you don't leave. Because God has put you there. Obviously, you're in a situation where you can continue to be a, a witness to the gospel. So God here reminds him who commissioned him for battle. Next thing I want to show you is that I believe that God reminded how and where the battle is fought. How and where the battle is fought. So Timothy's been commissioned. He's been reminded who has commissioned him. That now the letter and Paul begins to tell him, okay, here's how you're going to do this, Timothy. I'm going to equip you a little bit. I'm going to show you how. You've been equipped and commissioned by God, but how are you going to do this, right? How are you going to do this? Second part of 18 says that by them, right, these, these prophecies, right, these, these things that have been told to you, but by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Okay, what, is it, what does it mean here? It says that by them that you may wage a good warfare. In other words, that by those truths, by those things, and I'm reminding you of who I am and what I've asked you to do and commissioned you to do, that by those, that acknowledgement in your life that you will now wage a good warfare. You will, you, will, you will give your life away for this because you know that I'm in it. I'm behind it, right? Holding faith, right? What does it, it mean there to kind of, first of all, have a good warfare? Notice that Paul uses these military terms all the time. In fact, the word charge that we looked at earlier, this charge, is a military, com uh, basically a command from a, uh, from a, a general to someone who said, you, you do this. It, it's, it's not just a suggestion. It's a command, an order to someone to do this. That's the, the thrust of the power of this statement. And that by that, basically, you wage a good warfare. He's bringing these military terms in here because Paul understands that this is, this is not, this is tough stuff. This is, this is battle. And once again, I'm not, I'm not trying to, to say, oh, we need to be um, 
you know, go to war in the, in the physical sense, but there truly is a cost and a battle that, that rages in the spiritual realm. And, and we're a part of that. God has placed his spirit in us. We are sent out as ambassadors into the world. And then what is the world? Is the world is the enemy somewhat in that sense? I mean, we love people, but we know that there's a spiritual world out there that, that is not wanting. It wants to suppress us and kill us. Why do we put on the armor of God? Because there's a battle out there. And there's, we could go through all of why that armor and all the things that the armor does, and that's not for today. But, but here he's reminding him of how and where to fight the battle. And so this is this warfare. This idea of a warfare is, is a campaign. That, that word in the Greek is like um, an expedition, a campaign that he embarks upon. A military service. So you've enlisted and you're in the campaign now, right? You're in it. As I I think about this and I think about all those men and women in Ukraine, people that never thought that they would be fighting for their country. And yet, warfare has come to them and they are willing to lay down their life for their country. And I think that what we miss sometimes is we don't see that in the spiritual world. We think that we can just live happily and and just do everything we want and avoid all the challenges of of the warfare in the world and and the spiritual warfare and 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 that's going to please God and honor God, and it doesn't. I'm not saying you're not a believer. I'm just saying that he's enlisted us to go into all the world. Right? And, and, and when we say the Great Commission to go into all the world and, and, to, and to share and to baptize in his name and to teach everybody to obey all that he's commanded, you think that's going to be easy? He doesn't say there, oh, it's going to be really hard. But he says, I will be with you even to the end of the age. Because what he's saying is it's going to be hard, and so I will be with you. And that's what he's telling Timothy here. I'm the one that commissioned you. I will be with you. And now he says, here's how you do this. And so wage the good warfare. Holding faith. He's reminding Timothy to hold on to what has been taught to him. Hold on to the truth of the gospel, Timothy. Hold on to what you know is true. Oh my gosh, this is so important for for the church today. We have been given and entrusted with the truth, the mystery of the gospel, this beautiful picture of what God has done to redeem sinful man and give us eternal life. And we need to hold on to it and protect it and hold it tight. Now, we also need to give it away. We need to share it so it's not this, this thing that we're, we're hiding it, right? We don't hide the light under a basket, Jesus says in, in the Gospels, right, in the parable. We, we share it, but we hold on to it. We protect it. We don't allow, and that's why we protect it from false teaching because it's that precious to us. If we allow the false teaching to come in and, and begin to undercut the, the truth of the Gospel, it begins to water it down, and then it, it, it loses the power that that God had put in it. Many years ago, I, I preached a message. One of my points was, the gospel plus anything is no longer the gospel. It's not. You add works to it. You add baptism to it. You add anything to it. You've completely destroyed the grace of the gospel and the great thing that happens in the gospel. So this idea of holding on to faith, it's this idea to, to lay hold of something, right? Um, to adhere, to cling to. You could even say, um, in some respects, and this could be similar to when a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, right? You hold on to each other tightly. Let no one separate you. That's the idea. We, we cling to this faith, this truth that God has given us in the scriptures, and we hold tight to them. It doesn't say we hold tight only when everything's going well. 
And in fact, the idea of holding tight means that there's going to be challenges to rip the ball away from you, right? I was at a 10-year-old basketball game yesterday, and, um, and my little granddaughter's playing, and, 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 you know, God love her. She's the smallest one on the team and the most timid one on the team. And, um, but as the girls are playing, going back, to my, I'm sitting next to my wife, and, and, you know, these little 10-year-old girls are ruthless, you know what I mean? Man, you want to send somebody to war. Send these kids, right? And they're just grabbing the ball and knocking out. And my wife looks at me and says, that's not right. They can't do that. I said, sweetie, that's the game, right? Well, it's, so, it's not right. And, I mean, for a half hour, she keeps looking at me, and I'm saying, that's the game, you know? I mean, they're wrestling on the ground. There's five women or five girls wrestling for the ball. And then it's jump ball, you know, and, and we don't do jump. It's possession. And... But these girls are fighting for the ball. In everything in our life, we do that. But sometimes we get to the spiritual world. Ah, what's the point? Right? I don't understand everything. But in everything, our sports, man, we are just sports nuts. We're so competitive. We want to win. We want our jobs. We're so driven and, and, you know, to make this and to do that. And, and then we get to the spiritual world and God says, I, I want you to enlist. I want you to fight for me. I want you to, I want you to go do battle. Not, not in a harsh way, in a loving way. And yet, we just say, no, I don't want to do that. And so we need to hold on to the faith. That's the first thing he tells Timothy. This idea of faith, it's a conviction, a trust, a belief in God. This, once I said, I've said before, faith is, is not just an intellectual thing. It is believing in something. It is holding tight to it and believing specifically something, that Jesus was God, that he really did live a sinless life, really did die for us and raise from the dead. There really was a resurrection Faith is not just this um, subjective thing that's out there. It is tangible. We believe it. It's historical. We hold on to it. We, we esteem it. We protect it. And then it says, and a good conscience. So not only holding faith, but we also should have a good conscience. Where do, where do we see this? We saw this a few weeks ago when Brian spoke in early 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, it says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, right? So a pure heart, I, I don't have any evil, I don't want, you know, I, I want to be pure. I don't, I don't want anything to be contaminated. I want to do things for the right reason. I don't have any ulterior motive, a good conscience, which we'll talk about that, and a sincere faith. So he's already established that in the charge early on. He says, as you do this, Timothy, as you go and, and, and work against false teaching, I want you to do it with a pure heart. I want you to do it with a secure and a, and a, a sincere faith, and I want you to do it with a good conscience. So, so what does it mean to have a good conscience? I told Brian after I get done with the message, it was a great message. I said, but I think we need to go back and say, what is a pure conscience? What is a good conscience? What's a bad conscience? What, what does it mean? Everybody has a conscience. God has given us this thing in our, in our mind, in, our, in who we are. It's this thing that, that we wrestle with, that, that's, that's always kind of deciding things and which way we go. Let me give you a couple definitions here. Conscious, distinguishing between what is morally good and bad. Commending one and condemning another. I read a small little book by R.C. Sproul once that, that talked about that we live in a world of, of black and white, virtue and sin, and, but yet there's gray. 
He said the conscience is always working in the grave to figure out where we should put that. Right? It, nothing is neutral. And you think, well, yeah, there's, but no, nothing's neutral. There's either glorifying God with this or it's not glorifying God. It's either for righteous purposes or it's for evil purposes. And he says, we're always working in that gray, and our conscience is constantly working there to say, where do I put this? Do I, do I have this part of my life? Do I condemn this? Do I, do I behold this? Do I, you know, do I condone these things? Where am I at? Give you another definition here. A good conscience isn't just a conscience that approves of us, approves us, but one that approves us because we have been doing what is right it is connected with good conduct. And so in other words, we have to be doing what is right. We can't have a good conscience if we're not morally living good, if we're not doing what is right. And I would believe that's where the Holy Spirit works in our conscience, to, to bring us to repentance, to bring us to the awareness of sin. Commentator George W. Knight said it this way. I liked how he put this. A good conscience is a state in which one's moral self-evaluation accurately registers that one has been obedient to God. So if you want a good conscience, your mind is wrestling, have I been obedient? If you can put your head down at night and say, yes, I'm I'm looking, I'm examining my heart in light of Scripture. And No, you just can't say, well, I get to make up my own rules about how I judge my conscience. No, we, we take that to the Word of God and the truth of God, and we say, in comparison to that, am I living in the right place? Because otherwise, everything is subjective. Anyone could say, no, I'm doing the right thing. Hitler could say, well, I was doing the right thing. I was trying to just purify humanity. I have a good conscience about that. Well, no, because that doesn't line up with anything that is godly. God does not, obviously, not want any of that. Paul says it this way in Acts chapter 24, verse 16. He says, so I always take pains. All right, so Paul's saying, man, I, I really just do whatever I have to to keep this good conscience. I, so that I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. I, I'm, I just want to, I want to make sure that when I examine my heart and I Review myself that I'm, I'm living right among men. I'm living at peace. I'm not, I'm not unloving. I'm, now, maybe that doesn't mean that we don't draw lines. It doesn't mean that we're not firm on things. But that we, how we do it, do I do it out of a, a sinful heart, out of a vengeance, or am I doing it out of a right standing before the Lord and saying, no, I, I need to do this because it is the right thing. It's going to glorify God. And, and yes, there are consequences to that. And obviously, Paul says, I, I want a right conscience before God. All right, so not only here we see in the text that God has reminded Timothy of that he's been commissioned by him, but he's been commissioned and told how to do it and where the battle is fought, and it is fought in our, in our mind and our heart. Many times in Scripture, those, those two things are synonyms. They, they're the, kind of the same thing, right? When it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, well, we know that our heart beats and it pumps blood, and so that's kind of a... Not exactly, but it's this idea of who we are, how we think. It's this whole consciousness thing that, that how we function, right? And what does Scripture say? Is it says that where does sin start? I ask this in counseling classes all the time. Where does sin start? Right here, right? And, and if you feed that, Scripture says it leads to death. 
not just physical death, it leads to the death of your relationship. If, if you sit, sin starts in your mind and, and pornography is the thing that you're going to set your mind on and, and then it's going to lead to some type of an adulterous affair, it's going to lead to the death of your marriage, folks. It's that simple. It's the same thing. If you set your mind on having things and you start to steal and be dishonest, you could end up in prison. It leads to death in all sorts of different ways. And we could take that into gossip. We could take that in so many places. And so what we set our mind on, that's why it's, Paul says, by the renewing of our mind, right? We're fallen. Our mind is fallen from, from the fall. And we're constantly now by the gospel has, has been given to us, the Holy Spirit. And now we're in the process of renewing that fallen mind. And we're struggling. And, and the conscience is the thing that is at war in us. And, and we are feeding. We need to feed it. Some people say, well, have you ever heard somebody say, well, my conscience is seared. That's generally not a good thing. It means you've been living in sin so long. And you've just been okay with it that you're not you're numb to it anymore. You don't even, you're not even challenged by it. That's why I tell people all the time, I said, you need to be praying that God will reveal your sin to you. You need to be sin sensitive. You need to be working in cooperation with your conscience. And that's why Paul says, or I think it's Jesus says, take every thought captive and put it under Christ. It starts here, it's gonna come. Like you, you'll be sitting at the kitchen table and you're not even thinking anything. Boom, there it is. This thing that where did that come from? You have a choice at that moment. Do I meditate on this? Do I feed it? Do I think it out a little further? I'll just play with it a little bit. No, you take it captive, put it under Christ, and say, I'm killing that thing. I'm not giving it any foothold in my mind because it will take me places that will not be good, and ultimately, if I feed it too much, it leads me to death. And so that is what Paul is reminding Timothy. Timothy, how you think how you feed your brain and your mind and your heart, what you feed it with is important. The third thing we see here, he, reminded, he was reminded that war is personal. He's reminded that war is personal. Let's look at verse, the second part of 19. First part of 20. It says, by this, by rejecting this, I'm just going to stop real quick right there. By rejecting this, what is he rejecting? What's he saying that people are doing? What are they rejecting? When you read this, you always get to, okay, what's that mean? He's rejecting a good conscience. I, that, in the Greek, that's not referring back to the faith. Now, we could reject the faith. Absolutely, that's possible. We reject the truth of the gospel, and we see that. But I think specifically here in, in the language, he's saying, if you reject having a good conscience, if you just give in, which then ultimately you're rejecting the faith, as it streams out, right? Because you're not, you're not adhering to it. But you may say, for many of us, we say, well, I believe, but I let my conscience, I, don't, I, don't, I just let it do whatever it wants, and so I continue in sin. You're not rejecting the faith. You're just rejecting living by the word of God. And so he says, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. He's not saying they're not believers. It's possible. We don't know. That's for God to judge. He's saying, but they've made a shipwreck of their faith. Among whom are, if I get this right, Hemenaeus and Alexander. Now you say, well, why did Paul name these guys? Why is that important for us? I don't know, but one reason, one thing I take away from it, it's personal. Real people walk away from the faith. Real people deny the gospel. Real people live in sin. He's reminding Timothy, Timothy, this really happens, and it, there's consequences in people's lives for this. 
This is not just theoretical things. This is not just theology that's happening out there. It's happening in people's hearts and minds. There's something that's going on in you. There's this battle, and some of you have made shipwreck of your faith at different moments in your life. I had made shipwreck of my faith at times. So I want to be real clear here. I don't think what Paul is saying is if you made shipwreck of your faith, then you're not saved. Clearly, that's not what he's saying. How do we know that? Well, a couple things. One, we could see that Paul's relationship with a guy named John Mark, when we went through, um, oh my gosh, we went through, uh, where, where was that at? Acts, and, and uh, yeah, it was the book of Acts, where he, he gets John Mark and he goes on mission with him. It's, it's Barnabas's, uh, we believe it's brother-in-law or something, uh, cousin, and he's, he's on this guy named John Mark, and he's, he's on the road, and, and, and he, somehow there's something that happens, and when they get ready to go on the second missionary journey, Paul says, he ain't going. I don't want him. And Barnabas says, but, and it even caused a split between Barnabas and Paul. And Paul said, on second missionary journey, Barnabas, I'm not taking him. He left us. He left his post while we were out on the mission field. I'm not taking him. I would say that he's saying he made a shipwreck of his faith. I don't want him along. Now, by God's grace, we see later that John Mark comes back around and and Paul considers him one of his best confidants, one of his best best, uh, fellow um, people that he's mentored, and and he's been a great blessing to Paul. And so this idea that it's not final, it can be. If we've never believed, then we're, we're still lost. Maybe we've never been saved. Maybe it's that you've made a shipwreck of your faith, you're believed, but, but your life and your faith just really have no impact to the kingdom at all, that you're living in such a way, you're a believer, but you're just, you're just not doing anything that is really glorifying God or the church, and God is keeping you in his grace, but you really are just not able to really leverage any of the gifts that God has given you. And that's just a sad place that we don't want anybody to be. What's another one we can think of? We think of Peter. I think Peter shipwrecked his faith one night. Three specific times. I don't know the guy, right? He just abandoned, he just jumped overboard. He just said, I'm not going. I don't believe. I don't know the guy. He just made a shipwreck of his faith in that moment. See, sometimes... Sometimes the shipwreck can mean we take on a little water and we got to bail like crazy and patch the hole. That's really, we're always having that moment, aren't we? Every moment, every day, there's like, oh man, there's a crack in the boat. <laughs> like, get the pitch out. We got, get the bail out. We got to get on it right away. Sometimes we get a crack in the boat and it starts to leak and we just say, you know what, but I'm really enjoying doing this. I don't want to do that. And next thing you know, the boat's half full and the boat starts to sink and you've made a shipwreck of your faith. And now you got to hope that you're not going to drown in the water. And so he says, by rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of the faith. Among them are these two guys, Hamenaeus and Alexander. Now, we don't know for sure, but if we look at Acts chapter 13, I want to be real clear about this. We're not sure that these are all the same men. There's Obviously, there was other people named Jesus in the, in the New Testament or in that time. There are other people named Alexander and Hamenaeus. And so we're not 100% sure. But here we see some similarities to to who these guys are a little bit. And so we look at Acts chapter 13, verse 46. It says, Paul and Barnabas spoke spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Oh, that's right. I wanted to cover this. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are 
turning to the Gentiles. The, the reason I wanted to read that is this idea of rejecting is this idea in the Greek of thrusting it aside. We, we, we know it, but we just set it aside. We don't, we don't want to acknowledge it. We do that all the time when we make the conscious decision to sin. You know what the Lord wants you to do or not to do. And our conscience is aware, and we thrust it aside, and we say, I'm going to do it anyway. It happens to me, I don't want to say daily, but my conscience is there. Where's the number one place for a lot of us that happens is gossip, how we're speaking. Are we building people up or tearing people down? And that, that, that's just, I mean, it's, it's like always, if you're talking to people, because people, whether you're the one initiating the gossip or someone else is initiating the gossip, you're obviously, your conscience is saying, okay, can I go here? Can I go here? No, I can't go here. Nope. I got to stop this conversation. I don't want to, they're going to think I'm weird if I stop this conversation. Say, I don't want to talk about that. But that's, that's the struggle. That's, that's where the battle is fought for many of us. And those places, and God cares about those moments. He absolutely cares. Are we going to honor him in that moment and stand for him? Or are we going to give in? Is our conscience going to commend something good? Or is it going to, con- you know, Reject it, right? So it's thrust aside. This idea, why does Paul use this term shipwreck? Um, well, most people believe because Paul was shipwrecked multiple times and he understood this imagery that he was creating in people for people. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, it says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. So Paul is, is understanding, and actually what you'll see here is when Paul wrote that letter, there was another shipwreck that was going to come when he was on his kind of a, one of his final journeys to Rome to be in, put in prison. He was shipwrecked in a major way that the book of Acts talks about. So really, he was shipwrecked, we know of at least four times, we, and we know the details of one of them greatly. We don't know the details of these other ones. But Paul understands that if you're out at sea and, 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 and the, the boat becomes, there, there, there's a storm, because when we're in the world, there's a storm. And, and the question is, are we doing things to balance the boat? Are we doing things to protect it and to keep water from filling in and, and breaking apart? Or are we just sitting there idly by and letting it happen to us? And so he uses this term as a way to understand, did Paul survive his shipwrecks? Absolutely. Absolutely. He's right here. He's writing. These three shipwrecks didn't kill him. He has faith. And so we know that shipwrecks are not doomed to doom us to our faith, Right? It doesn't mean we're not a believer. It doesn't mean that we can't come back into a, a beautiful relationship with the Lord. But then finally, he names these two men, and obviously it makes it personal. It says, but here in, uh, let's see, where are we at? In uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16, once again, we're not saying that these are the people, but avoid uh, irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Let their talk, and their talk will spread like gangrene among them, Hymenaeus and Philtus, uh, who have severed, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some to come. So we're wondering, okay, is this the same guy? I believe that this is the same guy. It's referenced in 2 Timothy. It would make sense that he's probably talking about the same man. Here he's just saying a little bit more detail. He's saying they've swerved from the truth. You want to make shipwreck of your faith? The first thing that you do is swerve from the truth of God. It's an indicator. If you want to know if somebody that you're talking to has, has a shipwrecked faith, ask, what are they encouraging you? Are they encouraging you to sin? Good indication that they have a shipwreck in their faith. 
are they, are they, have they turned away from the gospel? Do they, how do they look at and uphold the word of God? Do they believe the word of God? Do they, do they believe it's true? Only certain parts of it. I would argue that that's, that's, they're taken on water. You've got to be careful there. They're taken on water, right? In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14 and 15, we see Alexander mentioned. Once again, I believe this is probably the same guy. We're not 100% sure. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. This is Paul talking now to Timothy. In the second letter, he writes him, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Maybe a more overall passage that will kind of sum these up as Paul talks about it in Romans 16, verse 17. He says, I appeal to you. Now he's speaking to the church here at Rome, the church at Rome. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. I don't have time to go into all of this, and it's a really heavy, heavy um, topic and something that we really need to look at, at Scripture, but if someone is living contrary to the gospel in an antagonistic, um, real meditated sort of way, we should avoid them. You say, but we have to reach them. No, we pray for them, and, and, and we love them, and we pray for them, and, 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 but, and when I say avoid them... Maybe, I'm not saying we don't ever speak to them. I'm saying we can't say, you know, I tell people all the time, if someone in the church, now I'm not talking about outside the church, unbelievers, we should go and we should share the gospel, we should do all those things. And, and, but our relationship inside the church, if I have a good friend here in the church and, and we're friends and we go to the Dragons game together and, and we go, you know, hunting together or whatever it is, and, um, and all of a sudden I find out that he is totally unrepentant, he's moving away from the Lord, and he has got a girlfriend on the side that his wife doesn't know about. And now she finds out about it. Am I supposed to keep going to the Dragons game with him? No. Am I supposed to continue to love him? Yes. Share the gospel with him? Yes. Invite him to make sure he's coming to service? Yes. As a shepherd, I'm not going to allow him to serve here in any capacity. He's, he's, a, he, he's shipwrecked his faith right now. He's, he's in the prize. He's taking on water. He's a bad witness for the church. He is going to cause problems. If you let the, this person live in willful, open sin and still get all the benefits of the fellowship of the church, that's not what God has in mind. And I know in our culture today, that is not popular. It, we look at the church and all oh, the church is hard. Do you let your children play in the street? No. It, I don't know so why we just can't see it in the church. We're letting people do things that has potential consequences for eternity in their life. And yet we say, oh, no, don't be harsh on them. I can't. I don't want to say anything bad. I, you know, they're a nice person. They're committing adultery right now. They're going to the bar every weekend and getting slosh drunk. Yeah, but they're my friend. Well, good. Pray for them. Bring some conviction. Have some hard conversations. When they call to go to the game, don't go. Now, if they call and say, hey, can I, I need to talk to you, man. I, my life is shipwrecked. Can, can you talk to me and help me? Yes, be there like that. That's totally different. And that really gets into Matthew 18 and how we handle when people are in sin in the church. And, and if we want to be healthy, what is, what is Paul instructing Timothy? False teaching. Well, there's, there's more to it than that. There's also this idea. He's obviously, as the pastor, as, as the kind of the, the delegate here of the church, he's dealing with those big things. But I would tell you that the rest of Scripture really brings it down and says, even inside the flock, we need to make sure that we're, we're watching over each other. And if someone is not living the way they should, we should lovingly go to them and help them correct them. I need correction from time to time. But if someone decides to basically reject it, 
thrust it aside and say, I'm going to do what I want. I don't care what you say. I don't care what the scripture says. Okay, what happens? And so here, the next point and the final point is that God is reminding Timothy that there's real consequences in war. Real consequences in war. What do we see what happens here to these two men, Hamanaeus and Alexander? In verse, the second part of 20, he says, Whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. What does it mean to be handed over to Satan? Does that mean that he's prayed that they'll spend eternity in hell? No, that's not what, that, that's, not what that's saying. I think a better way of looking at that is, is that he's, he's handed them back to the world. Right? He's, he's separated them from the church, the fellowship of the church in a way that says you can go back into the world. You're not going to have the benefits of all of the, the things that are going on in the church. Right? You're, you're just not going to have that. I'm turning you over then to the world. You can't live here that way. Right? I'm going to separate you. This idea of being delivered up. Um, you, you, we can see this in Matthew 20, verse 18. It's, not a, a, it's this idea when Jesus was delivered over, right? Uh, to be killed. It says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the priests and scribes, and they will be condemn him to death. He was delivered over to the world, and they killed him, right? This is what it means when Paul's saying, I'm going to deliver them over to the world, and, and, and I hope that the world living there will help them come to their senses. Back in the Old Testament, when the prodigal son comes and says, Father, I want half my inheritance. I want to go now. I want to live how I want to live. I'm rejecting and thrusting to the side everything else that I know you want from me. I want to do what I want to do. And the father says, okay, I'm going to give you back to the world. What's the hope? That he's going to be eating bean pods or whatever it is and feeding the pigs and be hungry. And he's going to come to his senses because he's going to realize the world is not what I want. And I want to come home. I want to come home. And that's when the, the beautiful picture of the father says, yes, I, I'm waiting for you to come home. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. And so when we, as, as the body of Christ, when we kind of set someone aside, you know, obviously turning them over to Satan is not the term that I would use in our church today, that, hey, we're going we're gonna to turn Bill over to Satan. No offense, Bill. Um, you know, because he's living in such a way. No, I'm going to say, no, we, we need to break fellowship with Bill in this particular way. Because we care for Bill. Because I need Bill to come to repentance. One, I'm protecting the flock from the, the attitudes, the beliefs, the structures, the, the actions of someone that could be harmful to the flock. I'm also caring for Bill because I want him to come to repentance. We believe this in many other things. Have you ever had a, have a child that's maybe grown up and you just can't continue to enable them? Should have been a bunch of amens there. but And you turn them over. And you, say, and you pray for them, and you're on your knees for them. You want God to intervene and, and, and show himself to them and bring them to repentance. But if you keep enabling them, if you keep giving them 100 bucks to pay their rent, and you keep doing all of these things, they'll just stay in their, their rebellion. Because, man, it's cushy. I get it both. I get everything. I get my cake and eat it too. I've heard that somewhere. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5. This is, this is this piece here in 1 Corinthians where there's a man in the church that basically is sleeping, I think, with his stepmother. And, and what does Paul tell them? He says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. 
Okay, so he can die. He Turn him over to the world. Now, but look at what Paul then goes on to say. So that his spirit may be saved for the day of the Lord. Paul doesn't want to look, send him to hell. He's saying, no, I, I want him to come to repentance. And so by turning him over to the Lord, hopefully it'll be so devastating and so ugly and unappealing out there that he'll see the sweetness of the church and the body of Christ and the relationship and the love of God that is through Christ that he will come back. And that's where we pick up the last piece. It says that they may learn not to blaspheme. So when you're out there in the world and you're blaspheming God and, or you're in the church blaspheming, he commits you out there that when you come back, you won't blaspheme anymore because you'll see the sweetness of Christ. You'll see the sweetness of the gospel. You will never think about tarnishing the gospel or Christ or God or the Holy Spirit because you now have seen it in a way that is so valuable to you. So what is the takeaway today. Every disciple of Jesus has been commissioned for battle. Not just Timothy. Yes, Timothy for this specific thing. Yes. But every one of us has been commissioned to carry the gospel, has been entrusted with the gospel, to hold it, to, to, to hold the faith, to have a, a clear conscience to, to live rightly among people. I could, have, I could have spent another hour, and I know you guys wanted me to, but I'm not going to, to, to go and, and, and talk about, look everywhere, look up clear conscience in Scripture. Everywhere Paul talks about having a clear conscience. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Paul's saying, I, I want a clear conscience. I have a clear conscience. I've lived right before you. He talks about people are going to revile you, but if you have a clear conscience when they revile you, they will be ashamed because you have not done anything wrong. That's the place that the Christian wants to long to live, is in that place. And we're going to fall short of that. I fall short of that. But that's why we're together. We encourage one another. We, we, we remind each other of the love that we have and, and, and that, that when you feed that sin, it's going to lead to death. And we need to speak truth to one another in love, but speak truth. It's not enough just to pass each other in the hallway and not be connected in the church, in the body. That's a, a disaster, it's like a sheep on a hill when nobody's around. It's dinner, right, for the wolf. It, God has just painted these pictures so clear and simple for us, and yet we just cast them aside. So every disciple of Jesus has been commissioned for battle. I'll leave you with this question as we close. Are you prepared to live for Christ? You've been commissioned as a believer. Now, if you're not a believer, you're here today, I pray that the Lord will do something in today's service. You'll see that, that God is who he says he is. You'll understand that the gospel is this great love, this act of love that God has sent his son into the world to die for you, to, to, to cleanse you of your sin, to, to take away the wrath of the Father that will be on you if you do not do that, and he'll give you a, a right standing before the Lord and save you and give you eternal life. That's our hope. That's real life change begins there. But for the rest of us, the question is, are you prepared to live for Christ? And what I'll tell you is, think about what we just talked about. You need to, met, I do this often, because sometimes I'm, as I'm pastoring, and I'm, I, you know, like everybody else, we're overwhelmed in our, in our job and our faith, and we doubt, and, and we just struggle. And, and I, when I have those moments, I go back to those things that I'm reminded where I clearly see God worked in my life and said, this is who I am, Raleigh. Never forget it. This is what I did for you in that moment, in that season of your life. Do you remember that, Raleigh? I'm real, and when I begin to meditate on those things, it reminds me to stay at my post, regardless what's going to happen, right? I'm reminded. 
I'm remembered who called me. I'm reminded that this fight and this war is really in my mind. The understanding of truth and holding on to it and having a clear conscience, that's where I need to wage war at that moment. Not against people here in my heart. And when I get that right, I will love well. I will love my wife better. I will be a better pastor and a better friend and a better grandfather. So I pray that you will do the things necessary to prepare yourself to live a life pleasing to God. And that is, at times, a battle. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for our time together this morning. Lord, I praise you for who you are. I thank you that you have equipped us with the Holy Spirit. I thank you for how you called this young man, Timothy, for the specific thing that we've just read about. How you reminded him that, that you had set him apart. You had a plan for his life and you were working and that you revealed yourself to him and you encouraged him through these letters from Paul. Lord, I thank you that you have also instructed us today that, that you have called us as believers. We have a call on our life. You have given us instructions about the battle and, and how to fight it, that we fight it in our hearts and our minds. We, we hold on to the faith. We hold on to the, the text of Scripture, the truth of Scripture. We hold on to the, the death and resurrection, the work of Christ. We hold it. We protect it. And, that, Father, that we're reminded that war has consequences. And they're real. It's personal. And so we need to engage because eternity is in the balance for people. And, Father, why we don't control that in any way, you clearly tell us that we should care about it deeply and that you will work through our actions to bring about your purposes. Father, we thank you this morning. I pray that we will be prepared as we leave this place and we'll be committed to continue to seek after holiness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at theridgechurch.net. Have a blessed day.